Good evening. Uh, this week, there's a lot going on this week. First of all, it is a new parasha. In fact, we have a double parasha um, for our leisure reading. It's uh, the double parasha of Achrei Mois. That's one parasha. And Kedoshim. Achrei Mois uh, starts off with a discussion of Yom Kippur, of the service in the Holy Temple on Yom Kippur. Why is it called Achrei Mois? Because it opens with mention of the death of Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then the next parasha is Parashas Kedoshim. It opens with the instruction that we should be holy because God is holy. So it would seem quite uh, appropriate that both of these uh, parashas come together. Achrei uh, uh, starting off with a discussion of the holiest day of the year, the holiest person in the year, uh, the holiest person in the Jewish people, which is the Kohen Adol, entering the holiest spot uh, in the world, which is the Kedosh HaKadosh in the Holy of Holies. <coughs> Kedoshim opens up with the instruction that we should be holy. However, if you're going to go through the details of the parashas, you're going to see further on in the parsha, it talks about some very mundane and very regular issues, down-to-earth issues, and even some type of stuff that people might be embarrassed to speak about in polite company. But this is where holiness really is. When we are, um, I say, when everything about our lives is in accordance with God's instructions and with God's guidance of how we should live our life. Um, let's talk for a moment about Achreimois. So when God tells Moses how to instruct Aaron the high priest how to go into the Holy of Holies, he makes reference to the fact that on the day that the tabernacle was inaugurated, um, his two sons, Nadav and Avihu, who are just newly inaugurated or installed Koihanim priests, they took they each took a fire pan with incense and they went into the Holy of Holies without being instructed to, without having the proper prerequisite. They did so because they were so excited about, uh, about God and about the divine revelation that they experienced that day. They wanted to come as close as possible. And so they went into the Holy of Holies. However, they, uh, they kind of stretched the envelope a bit and uh, they, they crossed the line. They came too close um, for a human being to even uh, handle such closeness to God, and as a result, they died. It was a, it was a huge tragedy. Um, but it was a tragedy that was kind of mixed with awe and reverence, the fact that these two were able to achieve such a tremendous closeness to God. Um, however, God was very clear that that was not His intention. In other words, even though these were very holy people who had achieved a tremendous closeness to God, however, God's intention is that we should live in this world, we should be living people, souls and bodies, <clears throat> and bring divinity, bring godliness into the physical matter of this world. So you can't do that if you're only a soul without a body. And so therefore, God tells Aaron, through Moses, he tells him, look, throughout the year, you shouldn't be in the Holy of Holies. That's not a place for a mortal. On one day a year, you're going to go and do a specific type of service. You're going to go and bring the incense. You're going to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices. And if you do it exactly as I tell you to, then it's going to be good. And, and Aaron, the high priest, and all the high priests afterwards are going to serve as like this conduit between this intense revelation of God and the Jewish people. And so it should be done in a way that is uh, helpful and, uh, and positive for everyone and for the ultimate goal. However, however, there is something to be said about the two sons of Aaron, what they try to achieve. Is there ever a time that we will be able to achieve such closeness to God? The answer is yes. That time will come. That time is what is described in our uh, holy sources as the time of Mashiach. And most specifically, after the coming of Mashiach, there's going to be Tchias HaMesim, the resurrection of the dead. And during that time period, it's not just going to be, oh, the dead come back to life. No, no, no. First of all, why should they come back? They're having a good time up there, no? The souls are basking in the divine light. And so Chassidus explains because all of that can compare to the tremendous revelation and the tremendous experience that souls will experience when they return to the bodies down here in this world during that era of the resurrection. All right. So, in other words, we haven't experienced it yet. Nadav and Avihu tried to experience it and poof, they went bye-bye. But ultimately we will experience it and our souls will remain in bodies. All Jewish people, all in fact, all people that will be deserving of Olam Abba, the world to come, 
<coughs> will experience Tchiyat HaMeitim, will experience the resurrection of the dead, and they're going to um, experience this tremendous revelation. The revelation that Nadav and Aviyu tried to have, but they were a little bit ahead of their time. Okay, now another thing. Today, as I'm sure all of you are aware, we started to learn um, the new cycle of the Rambam, of Maimonides. Yesterday was the last day. Yesterday we learned about the laws of Mashiach. Now, uh, when it comes to Mashiach, even though Maimonides gives some definitive uh, halachic definitions, halachic parameters um, of how we will know if this person is a Mashiach, if the era is the era of Mashiach, Maimonides makes a very important statement, and he says, there's very little about this time that is that, that was, that was uh, communicated to us through the prophets, even through our sages. And therefore, no one knows exactly how and what is going to happen during that time period. But we do know for a fact that that is the ultimate vision of the Torah. That is the ultimate uh, future of the world. Yemaisa Mashiach, the days of Mashiach, and Tchias HaMesim, the resurrection of the dead. In fact, um, he does not mention the resurrection of the dead in these laws. Uh, the concept of the resurrection of the dead, Maimonides mentions as part of the list of the 13 foundations of faith that every Jew has. The 12th one is the coming of Mashiach, and the 13th is the resurrection of the dead. We spoke about this a few weeks ago during this class. Um, so, in connection to all of this, um, the Jewish insights uh, that was prepared for this week uh, is something very special and very unique. We're not going to be learning a sicha, a talk that the Rebbe delivered after the, you know, after the year 1950, when the Rebbe officially became Rebbe, we're going to be learning excerpts from an article that the Rebbe wrote in a scholarly journal that was published during the 40s. Uh, so just to give some historical context, and then we're going to go straight into this because it's a very fascinating topic. Um, the previous Rebbe escaped the Nazis and came to the United States in the spring of 1940. End of the winter, whatever, like, you know, March time. Uh, 1940. A year and a half later, in the summer of 1941, the Rebbe uh, finally came to the United States. He also escaped the Nazis. The previous Rebbe came from Poland. The Rebbe came from France. So he had a little bit more time, you know, to... So um, the Rebbe came in 1941, and right away he was appointed to lead uh, most of the, of the Chabad outreach work. And uh, one of the publications that started then was a scholarly journal called Koivetz Lubavitch, which basically means the Lubavitch booklet, okay? The, the Lubavitch, uh, I say, periodical. Um, it wasn't Hebrew. It was written in scholarly language. It was meant for a more scholarly crowd. Uh, and there was a lot of different things there, you know, stories, uh, news of, of what's going on around, around the world in the Lubavitch community. And there was also in-depth scholarly... Um, I say, responsa, uh, people would write questions to the Rebbe, who was not the leader of the Chabad movement then. He was just the son-in-law of, of, of the previous Rebbe, who was the leader of the Chabad movement. Um, but he was already known throughout the Chabad world and beyond as a tremendous scholar, a brilliant scholar, a, you know, like a once-in-a-millennium type of scholar. And um, they would write questions to him, all different types of questions. And he would respond. He would try to respond as much as possible. And if it was something that the Rebbe felt was of interest to the broader public, he would publish this response in the Kaivetz Lubavitch. So 1946, about a year after the end of the Holocaust, someone wrote the following inquiry to the Rebbe. Please explain the resurrection of the dead. How will it happen? What will happen? When will it happen? To whom will it happen? I mean, it's pretty obvious you can understand what was on people's mind at the time. Six million were just killed, destroyed. Um, uh, I would even venture to say that part of what was bothering this fellow was, um, you know, if, if you take a deep dive into um, the concept of preparing the dead for burial, the way that is done is with the resurrection of the dead in mind. I'm not going to get into the details, but... The point is, many of the things that go into how the Chavar Kedisha prepares the, 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 the dead for burial and how the burial is done, is done with the resurrection in mind. The Jews that were, that were victims of, of Nazi, uh, whatever, I don't have to get into the details, the victims of the Holocaust, most of them, most of them did not merit to have that type of burial. Most of them didn't even merit to be buried in the first place. 
they were gassed, they were burned, they were cremated, and all of that. And I'm sure that there was a lot weighing on many Jews' minds, you know, about, about these victims. Anyway, so this was the question that came to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe responded to the question uh, by kind of collecting all the different sayings that are out there in Torah tradition, um, and bringing them all together to give somewhat of a picture of Tchias Amesim, of the resurrection of the dead, of which we all believe in, and we hope will happen very soon. Um... But while reading this, you'll see that this that the Rambam writes, this that Maimonides writes in the very end of his book, that everything about Mashiach is kind of like piecemeal because we don't really know what's going on. It's absolutely true. There's a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of conversation about what exactly is going to happen. But at the end of the day, whatever is going to happen, we want it to happen very soon. It should happen right away. All right, let's get straight into it. So page number three. Um, we're going to go through all different types of details of the resurrection of the dead. Number one, what's the timing of it? When will it happen? At what stage of redemption will we see the dead rise? So, the Rebbe says like this, <clears throat> based on uh, different sources, we could say the following. The third temple will be revealed prior to the return of all the Jewish people to the land of Israel. After all the Jewish people return, the dead will be resurrected. There will be a period of 40 years between the gathering of the Jews from exile and the resurrection. That's, that's step number one. What is the source for this? The Zohar. Right? The Zohar is the official book of Kabbalah. So let's go to the, to the source here from the Zohar. We learned that the temple comes before the gathering of the Jews from exile. The return of Jews from exile comes before the resurrection. <clears throat> and the resurrection comes last after everything. Where do we learn this from? It says in the book of Psalms, the Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers in the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their worries. So what does it mean he heals the brokenhearted? The last verse refers to the resurrection which heals the broken hearts of those mourning their deceased loved ones. Um, You'll remember, many of you I'm sure are aware that when a Jew is in mourning, the, I say, the consolation that we are supposed to say to a fellow Jew is, may God console you among all mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. What's the connection? What's, what's the connection between the consolation of this Jew who's grieving for the, the lost loved one to Zion and Jerusalem? So there's a lot of explanations to this. And one of them is just like the fact that the Jewish people are grieving for the destruction of the temple, they will not be, just like we know for a fact, that they will be consoled through the rebuilding of the third temple, so too what we're saying is, your consolation will only come by by the resurrection of the dead. So what the verse says, that he heals the brokenhearted, that's referring to the resurrection of the dead, because that's the only way to heal, to mend that broken heart, the, the, the heart that was broken as a result of the loss of a loved one. First comes, rebuilds Jerusalem, then gathers in the exiles of Israel. The final stage is healing the broken-hearted. Uh, and this actually coincides, or it, uh, it works well, with what Maimonides writes about the coming of Mashiach. In the future, the Messianic king will arise and restore the Davidic dynasty to its initial sovereignty. He will build the temple and gather the dispersed of Israel. Once that happens, then we know for a fact that Mashiach is here. It's the messianic era, and now, the now now we are able to experience the resurrection of the dead. I just want to note that this that he says earlier that there's going to be a time period of forty years in between. Uh, the Rebbe said on numerous occasions that that is not a definite number; it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It could be instantaneous. Once the holy temple is rebuilt, and once all the Jewish people are gathered into the land of Israel, the resurrection of the dead can happen then. <clears throat> okay, number two. How? So what does that mean? The number of departed who will return is obviously tremendous. Is there an order of who will be revived first? <laughs> They're all going to jump out right away. You know, let, let's give them some time. So here's the deal. The Rebbe is actually going to bring us, I believe, four, um, four approaches of how this is going to happen. Number one, the dead in the land of Israel will rise first, followed by those from outside Israel. And finally... The dead of the generation that wandered in the desert will rise last. 
Some say that our forefathers will be the last to rise. We'll talk about that soon. Let's see, where, where does this whole idea come from that those that are buried in Israel are going to come first, and then the ones in the diaspora? Source number three from Isaiah, let your dead revive. Let corpses arise, awake and shout for joy, you who dwell in the dust. So the Zohar explains, Rabbi Yochanan says, the dead from Israel will be resurrected first, as the verse refers to them, let your dead be resurrected. Let corpses arise refers to the dead from outside Israel. Why? That's not the conversation for now. And awake and shout for joy, you who dwell in the dust, refers to the generation of the desert. The reason, right, so as Rabbi Echanan said, why are we making such a big deal of the generation of the desert? So it was a big question in the Talmud, do they, are they deserving of resurrection? Their, their sin against God was so severe that perhaps there is, uh, there is a thought that they should not be deserving of resurrection. So as Rabbi Yochanan said, why did Moses die in the desert? To show the world that just as God will surely revive Moses when the redemption comes, who else is deserving of resurrection? If not Moses, right? So just like he will be resurrected, so too he will resurrect the entire generation which received the Torah. This is what the verse in Jeremiah hints at when it says, I accounted the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Which means that even though the generation of the desert, they sinned terribly to God. The fact that they did not want to go into the land of Israel, and that was the highest offense possible to the point that it was decreed that they would not go into the land of Israel. However, God says, I remember that you are the guys that actually ran out into the desert after me, and running out into the desert after God gets you a lot of credit. So therefore, in the merit of that, and the merit of Moses, you are going to come back uh, at the resurrection of the dead. All right, second opinion. Rabbi Shimon says, the dead of the land of Israel will rise first, followed by the dead from the outside of Israel. Okay? And finally, those who rest in Hebron, the forefathers of the Jewish people, they're going to be last. Why last? Why shouldn't they be first? In order that they should rise and be full of joy, seeing their children who have risen from their graves and the land filled with righteous and pious people. In other words, we want to bring Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and, and the matriarchs, we want to bring the patriarchs and the matriarchs to a full party, right? Who do you, the, the guests of honor, you bring them once the ballroom is full. So the same thing over here, God is going to bring back all those that deserve of resurrection first, and then, for, so the ones in Israel and the ones outside of Israel, and then he's going to bring our forefathers from Hebron. Someone's going to knock on the door and say, all right, you can come out to the party. <clears throat> Opinion number three. First, the righteous will rise, followed by everyone else. Torah scholars first, followed by those who focus on the mitzvot. Listen to source number seven, which is opinion number four. The dead will be called and resurrected in alphabetical order. All right, so (laughs) I don't know if it's first name, last name. I don't know the details here, but alphabetical order. And then he says, however... You know, if you want to skip the line, you want to, you want to get like, a, you know, group one on American Airlines. So if you want to get group one or if on Southwest, you want to get A1. However, the humble people will rise before everyone else. They're going to be upgraded. <laughs> They're not going to have to wait for their turn in line, alphabetical order. They're going to be the first ones. Those that are humble, those that are truly humble. True humility, I guess only God can judge. God can determine what is true humility. All righty. Um... All right, so we mentioned over here that those that were buried in Israel are going to wake up first. This actually fits with another issue that comes up. And the question is, where will resurrection happen? So you say, what do you mean? Wherever they're buried, right? That, that's where they're going to come up? No, no. Resurrection will only happen in the land of Israel. That's it. So one second, so what about all of the millions, hundreds of, I mean, millions of Jews that are not buried in Israel? By the way, there are many special people that are not buried in Israel. So listen to this. Whether the dead, we're continuing here at number three, right? Whether the dead are buried in Israel or outside Israel, the soul will return to its body only in Israel. So let's read the Talmud. Source number eight, Rabbi Lazar said, the dead from outside Israel will not be resurrected in the future, as it is stated. And I will set glory. The word for glory here is tzvi. I will set glory in the land of the living. 
This teaches that with regard to a land which contains my desire, desire in Hebrew is tzivyoni, its dead will come alive. However, with regard to a land which does not contain my desire outside of Eretz Yisrael, its dead will not come alive. Okay? So resurrection is only in Israel. So the Talmud asks, and according to the opinion of, I mean, according to Rabbi Elazar, right? So Rabbi Elazar said, resurrection is only in Israel, and he brings a proof from a verse. The Talmud asks, and according to the opinion of Rabbi Elazar, will the righteous outside of Israel not come alive at the time of the resurrection of the dead? You know who's not buried in Israel? Moses. He's also not buried in Israel. <laughs> it's like, what, what's going on? Rabbi Eloi said, they will be resurrected by means of rolling. They will roll until they reach the land of Israel, where they will be brought back to life. So all of them will ultimately be resurrected, but some of them might have to go through a bit of a, you know, a trip before being resurrected. Their bodies will roll to Israel. Don't start conjuring up images of what's going on here. Just, just you know, take it all in. Take it all in. Rabbi Abba Salar Rabbo strongly objects to this. Rolling is an ordeal that entails suffering for the righteous. I asked, what's going to happen with the righteous that are outside of the land of Israel? You said, yeah, don't worry, they're going to roll theirs. So that doesn't help. It's very painful. So Abaya said, tunnels are prepared for them in the ground through which they pass to Eretz Yisrael. The extra righteous, those righteous that are buried outside of Israel, there's going to be special tunnels for them. So they're going to go on the express train. They're not going to have to roll all over the, all over the hills and valleys and oceans and all that. They're going to get the express train to Israel, and they're going to be resurrected in Israel. All the rest are going to roll, and they're going to come. They're going to come to Israel, and that's where they're going to be resurrected. The, ver- the, the Talmud continues. The verse states that Jacob commanded Joseph, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burial place of my fathers. Karna said, Karna was the name of a sage, there's a deeper meaning here. Our patriarch Jacob knew that he was completely righteous, and if the dead of the lands outside of Israel come alive, why did he trouble his sons to bring him to Israel? The reason is that he was concerned lest he not merit the tunnels. Okay, he was extremely humble. He said, I know I'm going to be resurrected. However, I'd rather be buried in Israel. Because who knows, maybe, maybe I'm not going to be granted that special merit of having those special tunnels opened up for me from my grave outside of the land of Israel to Israel, and therefore I want to be brought there um, for burial. On a similar note, the same happened regarding Joseph. Right? He also died in the land of Egypt, and Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely remember you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Rabbi Hanina said there's a deep, deeper meaning here. Joseph knew concerning himself that he was completely righteous. And if the dead of the lands outside of Israel come alive, why did he trouble his brothers to carry his coffin 400 parts, a measurement of distance to Israel? Why did he have to make everyone so, uh, I say, why did he have to bother them to go and find him and to bring him, etc.? The reason is that he was concerned lest he not mer- merit the tunnels. Okay? He wanted to merit the tunnels. Um, by the way, it's not just Jacob or Joseph that specifically wished to be buried in the land of Israel. Throughout history, there were many great tzaddikim that specifically wanted to be buried in, in Israel. In fact, Maimonides himself, the Rambam, he passed away in Cairo, in Egypt. That's where he lived. The last years of his life was in Egypt. Um, that's where his main legacy uh, happened. Um, when he passed away, <laughs> a very fascinating story, he, t- he instructed his family to take his coffin and to tie it onto a camel's back. And to let the camel walk. That's it. So that's it. So they and the camel walked. The camel walked and walked until it came to the city of Tveria, Tiberias in Israel, the northern part of Israel. And the Jewish community that was there, they received the camel and the. I, I guess there was a note on the coffin, and uh, Maimonides, the Rambam, was buried in Tveria, in Tiberias. You can visit his uh, grave till today. There's, there's a very, it's a very, very fascinating place to be. Um, I had the merit to be there. Uh, in fact, on his uh, on his grave uh, on the gravestone, uh, there is there's a statement there which reads the following: From Moses, who received the Torah at Mount Sinai, until Moses Maimonides, there was none like Moses. 
It's a very powerful statement here. It's about 2,000 years between the two of them. And um, who is the author of that? I don't know. But one thing is for sure that for hundreds of years, uh, great you know, Jewish leaders and scholars and saintly people were there and they saw it and no one called foul on it. So this has become an official... Anyway, so it's, it's there in the land of Israel. That's where the Rambam is buried. And throughout, throughout history, there were many great sages, many, many Jews in general that wanted to be buried in the land of Israel. It's interesting to note that the Rebbe and any of the Chabad Rebbes, none of them were uh, interred in the land of Israel. And this was very specific. It was intentional. They did not want to be buried in the land of Israel, like similar to Moses, for example. Moses was not brought to Israel, and he was buried outside the land of Israel to be together with his generation. All the Chabad Rebbe specifically wanted to remain in the diaspora, to be together with the Jews in exile, um, so that if a Jew outside of the land of Israel, outside of, you know, disconnected from the inspiration that's available in Israel, needs to have some Israel-like inspiration, the Holy Land-like inspiration, they're able to go to the grave of a Rebbe, uh, to the oil of a Rebbe, and they're able to receive that type of... Uh, inspiration and uh, and uh, and holiness all right going back oh and by the way when the Rebbe speaks about you know the grave of a tzaddik he, he mentioned there was a time I think we even read the the, the sikha here in one of these classes he mentioned that that ultimately there's going to be a tunnel between this grave and Israel and there's a halachic ruling that if something is eventually going to be there it's as if it's there already so whenever you are at the oil, you're at the grave of a tzaddik, so you're able to access that holiness of the land of Israel that is accessible in Israel, is also accessible at the oil. Okay, let's go to source number nine. Who brings the bodies? Someone's got to roll them down the hill, right? So, someone's got to bring them over to the land of Israel. Rabbi Yitzchak said, the angel Gabriel brings them. Okay. Till now, it seemed a bit, uh, it was all about logistics, right? When's it going to happen? Where is it going to happen? Okay. So we know it's going to happen after the rebuilding of the temple, after all the Jews come back to the land of Israel. We know that it's going to happen. We know uh, how, in what order will it happen. Okay, we have different options. First, the ones in Israel, then the ones out of Israel, maybe alphabetical order. Those that are humble for sure are going to be first. Um, and where is it going to happen in Israel? Those that are there are fine. They wake up. Those that are not there are going to be brought there. Either they're rolling or they're going to come through the tunnels, whatever that might be. This is all logistics. Now let's get into something a bit more complicated. I'm sure you've heard from me or from others the concept of reincarnation. Gilgulim, ever heard of reincarnation? All right. Sounds like a freaky, freaky stuff, huh? Don't be so worried. Don't, don't be so worried. You know what? You don't have to deal with it. You know, when you go to the hospital and the, the doctor has to do a procedure, don't worry about it. It's the doctor's problem. Right? He's the one you're going to sue. So, uh, so when it comes to uh, souls, don't worry about the soul situation. God is the one that has to figure out how souls work and which bodies they come into. But if we're able to know uh, the ins and outs of how this works, let's get into it. So here is the obvious question. So we are taught that there are a certain amount of souls. These souls come down into the world and they do what they have to do. And then it's time to go back. They go back, they go back uh, to heaven. And then there's a, a, you know, an assessment. Did this soul accomplish everything it needed to do? If it did not finish everything, it has to come back down. It has to come back down to another body, live another life, and then it goes back up. If it didn't accomplish, it comes back down. It's not necessarily only relevant to the issue of accomplishing or not accomplishing, but we do find this concept of reincarnations relevant to many different tzaddikim, many different righteous people. And the fact of the matter is that all of us alive today are not fresh, brand new souls. We've been here before, all right? We've been here in a previous lifetime. So reincarnation is a real thing. And souls come back. Now, if the soul was operating in multiple bodies... What's the question now? At the resurrection of the dead, which body is going to come back to life? If you have a battery, right? And the battery goes in this machine and that machine and that machine and that machine. Maybe the battery can only go in one machine. <laughs> Scary, huh? Scary question? Not to worry. Not to worry. Here's how it works. Let's go to source number 10. 
if the soul's first life was not enough to completely fulfill that which was demanded of it. The first body may only have the part of the soul relevant to what he did in his lifetime. Here's how this works. The holy books tell us that every soul, let's just make this simple, every soul has 613 wires, right? 613 elements, facets, obviously um, corresponding to the 613 mitzvot. So when a soul comes down to this world and it does the mitzvot that it's supposed to do, so it corrects, it elevates that part of the soul for those mitzvot that it did. No. And if it didn't do certain ones. So like this. The soul came down into body number A. And in body number A, it did, let's say, 85 mitzvot out of the 613. So there are 85 elements of the soul that are relevant to that body. So those, that section of the soul comes into this body. Therefore, when the soul reincarnates in another body to complete its transformation, the part of the soul the second body has refined will stay with him to be resurrected. In other words, you got the soul. It's got 613 elements to it. I'm oversimplifying things. When it was in this body, it dealt with these elements of the soul. And this body was these elements. And these, so like the soul is going to be chopped up into a bunch of pieces and brought down into different bodies, the bodies that elevated that part of the soul. So the Rebbe asks obvious questions. Some may ask, if some bodies only have a portion of a soul, how can one be resurrected from a half soul? <laughs> you need to have a full soul to live a life. However, it is known that every part of a soul has all the other parts included in it as well. And every part has the image of a complete one. This is true even though it was only one aspect of a complete soul. Let's continue here. Moreover, all souls are, to begin with, portions of the soul of Adam, the first man. As our sages say, before Adam was given life, God showed him every righteous person that will come from him. One was placed in the soul by his head, some he placed by his hair, etc. In other words, like this. The soul is not like this piece of meat. You chop off this side and you give it to someone else. No one else can have that piece of meat. And it's only a piece. It's only a cut. A cut of meat. No, no, no. Souls aren't meat. They're not bones. That's not how it works. Soul is a soul. Soul is a spirit. And in fact, all the millions, billions of souls that are there actually originate in one soul. The soul of Adam, the first man. That original soul branched out into all the billions of souls. And all of our souls come from a different element of Adam. So those souls that are very much related to the concept of knowledge, so they came from Adam's head. Those that are very involved with emotions, they came from Adam's heart. Those that are involved in action came from his hands. The point is, don't worry about the soul being a handicapped half soul. That's not how it works. It's a certain element of the soul, but that little piece of the soul is an entire soul. An entire soul that is relevant to a very specific type of mitzvah, specific type of attitude in life, etc. So in other words, yes, even though the concept of reincarnation is a true thing, and souls, they don't finish their job and have to come back, and all of that, anyone that ever lived will come back. But one soul is going to be stuck with ten different bodies? No. Every soul, when it came into this world, did something else in that respective body. And therefore, that compartment of the soul, that element of the soul that was elevated and activated and corrected through being in this body will come into this body and it's going to be a complete soul as well. I don't expect you to understand it, but don't worry about it. That's the idea here. It's figured out. okay? And essentially, the point is that when you take a soul and you split it, you don't have two half-souls. They become two, two different souls. Related to the original soul. But they're complete and entire souls. Wholesome souls. Okay. So now we're, we don't have to worry. Everyone's going to come back. Now here comes another interesting question. So Mashiach is going to come tonight. Right? Mashiach will come. We'll have the, the Holy Temple. And... Uh, all the Jewish people that are going to come back to the land of Israel. No, and then it's time for the resurrection. 
and all the dead are going to come back. There's going to be millions of Jews alive during the time of the resurrection. Are they not going to be resurrected? Listen to this from the Zohar. It says in the verse, I will kill and revive. Until this point of resurrection, death only came from the other side, from the side of evil, the Malach HaMavis, from the, the angel of destruction. Now, however, in other words, in the time of the resurrection, I, God, will kill and immediately revive. What the Zohar is saying is that when the moment of resurrection will have to happen, everyone that is alive at that time will die and instantly come back to life. Why? Why do they need to do that? In order that no impurity from the world should stick to the soul and body, and the world will be a new and refined one made by God's hand. From the time that Adam sinned with the tree of knowledge, so everything in this world is a mixture of good and evil. Everyone, everything, everybody, everything in this world. And the whole purpose of the resurrection of the dead is that those that come back to life, they're going to be purged of any of this evil, any of this impurity. Those that are alive, their original state is a mixture of purity and impurity. In order to purge them of that impurity, God is going to have to basically do a complete reset. Kill everybody, bring them back. In other words, we're all destined to be resurrected. Question is, how much time we're going to spend in a different uh, reality. But the concept of resurrection is going to happen to every person. People didn't believe in all this. What was that? Didn't oh, that. so that you're bringing up a, a different question. The question yeah. you're asking is, uh, let, what about those people that are not deserving of resurrection? And the Mishnah actually mentions certain ones that will not that that are, that are not worthy of resurrection, right? That's a good question. There's actually a different article that Derber wrote about a year earlier than this that talks about that that specific question. Um, just want to bring to your attention that uh, right now we are in the, the time period of Sfirata Omer between Pesach and Shavuos, or in general in the summer, every Shabbat we read, we learn a chapter from Perkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. The custom is that before we learn the chapter, we read a Mishnah from the Tractate Sanhedrin, and the Mishnah says the following, Kol Yisrael, yesh lahem chelek All the Jewish people will have a portion in the world to come. Everyone. And you say, oh, but the Mishnah says, but there are some that are excluded. Don't worry about it. We, ha- we have that covered too. They'll get there too. Everyone's going to get there. That's the idea. It's never fun to exclude anybody. You know what I'm saying? The concept, the Mishnah says, is someone that doesn't believe that the resurrection will happen, so he doesn't believe in it, so he's not deserving of it. But uh, I say the later commentators and, and sages have figured out a way out to include everybody in the resurrection. Okay. All right. Well, you say that and say that, but we believe we will come out. Everyone's going to be there. Wherever you're expecting to see, you'll see them, okay? Mm-hmm. All right. You can, you can, you can start setting up, uh, how do say, parties, and, and you can make... Uh, yeah, you, you can make... Um, how do you say... Okay. Let's go to page number 10. So by now we know the resurrection could happen. It's going to happen to everybody. The soul will be matched to the body. All good. Here's another interesting question. When they come back, how are they going to look? First of all, they're going to have clothing. Second of all, people died quite ill. Many of them were blind, were maimed, were, <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of stuff. So how are they going to come back? Like, what, what is it? You know, what, what's going on? This whole argument, will people come back with, with looking young, looking old? <laughs> you know, what, what's the deal? All righty. So source number 12a from the Medrash. By, by the way, there's no consensus about this. There's, there's back and forth. There's different uh, opinions back and forth. In the manner in which a person departed, he will return. If he departed blind, he will return blind. If he departed deaf, he will return deaf. If he departed dumb, he will return dumb. Why is one brought back in the same way he went? So it should not be said that when they were alive, God did not heal them. But after death, he did. Maybe these are not them. You're not going to recognize them. If they're fully healthy, that's not the person. That's not the guy that left. God says, if so, they shall rise as they departed. Then I will heal them. 
So they're going to come back to life. They're going to have all of the problems that they had before they left. And then God will heal them completely. Source number 13. At the time Israel will arise from the dust, there will be many limp and blind individuals. And then God will shine the sun upon them to heal them. Source number 14 from the Talmud. God will remove the sun from its shield and the righteous will be, will be healed by it. By the way, there is a historical precedent to the concept of the sun healing in the story of Jacob, when Jacob had the wrestling match with the angel of Esau. So the angel dislocated his, I don't know what it's called, the, the, the sciatic nerve, right? The Gida Nosha. He gave him a little zet somewhere over there. He was limping. And the Torah says, Hashemesh. And the sun shined upon him. And our sages explain that God kind of, you know, provided for Jacob that, that miraculous sun healing that's going to happen in the time in the world to come. He provided it for Jacob. All right, so now we know they're going to come back with all of their problems, so at least we should recognize them. And then they're going to be healed. Will they be wearing clothing? And if yes, what type of clothing? Will they be wearing the clothing that they wore when they were buried? Or, or I don't know, what are they going to be wearing? What type of wardrobe do they have in heaven? Source 12b from the Medrash. Just as he departs clothed, he will return garbed. Okay, number one, they're going to come back with clothing. We derive this from Samuel. All right, so they're going to be wearing clothing and specifically the clothing that they wore during their lifetime. It's not their shrouds, but the clothing they wore during their lifetime. Now, this uh, story that we're going to say is... (laughs) Very fascinating story, disturbing, but it's a story in the Tanakh and the Bible, and we could learn from it. We derive this from Samuel. So, so I'll tell you the story, and then, then we'll go to the proof. So King Saul was the first king of Israel. He came from the tribe of Benjamin. Samuel the prophet was the one to anoint King Saul based on God's instructions. Saul was only king for about two years, and then he was killed in battle. Samuel died Samuel the prophet died about a year and a half into King Saul's reign. And then there was a terrible war with the Philistines. Now Saul, King Saul, wanted to get some instruction or, or uh, encouragement from God. The prophet Samuel was dead. So he wasn't able to get that type of communication. And he tried other ways of communicating with God. One of them was with the Urim Vitumim, with the, with the Kohen's breastplate. Nothing was working. He felt very lost. And so he decided he wants to visit... Um, a, a, an ove practitioner necromancer you know what that is a necromancer you know what that is Baalat Ov or someone wanted to translate here in Ovit so there, there was a there was a practice it was an idolatrous practice it was a heathen practice uh, they would do some type of stuff and they were able to conjure up spirits of the dead the way it worked was so you have the practitioner then you have the person that's requesting the practitioner to conjure up the spirit. The way it works is that the practitioner could conjure up the spirit and see the dead person, but cannot hear the dead person. The one who, who, has a, uh, who requested it, the one requesting the spirit, could not see the dead person, but could hear the message from the dead person. That, that's how it worked. Another rule, that for most people, the dead would be conjured up in the vision of the practitioner upside down. So we're upside down. But in the presence of a king, if the king was asking for the spirit to be brought, the spirit would reveal itself to the practitioner right side up. Fine. Now you're all professionals and ove, and now I must tell you that this is prohibited according to the Torah, so don't do it. All right, so, um, but during that time, there were plenty of these practitioners, and in fact, King Saul had purged this practice from the land of Israel. That's what he was supposed to do. Uh, There was one woman who, um, basically, her son was very influential, and um, she was left alone, but her son told her, "Don't, don't do this stuff, don't. Don't do the ove anymore. And she didn't. At this point, King Saul was desperate. He needed to have some type of divine communication. And all of the regular permitted routes were not working. So he decided to do the impossible. And that was to 
anonymously approach this woman, this necromancer, and to ask her to conjure up the spirit of Samuel. So he went anonymously, incognito, didn't look like the king, and he comes to this woman together with a few of his officers, and he requests that she should, she should conjure up the spirit of Samuel the prophet. So she said, you know, the king is going to find out about this, he's going to kill me. He said, no, don't worry about it. I'll make sure that the king doesn't touch you. Anyway, he, you know, he convinced her to do it. She did whatever hocus-pocus she, she did. And then she saw Samuel. But to her chagrin, she sees Samuel right side up. Which means that the man requesting it is the king. So she started shrieking at him. She said, you lied to me. You're the king. You're going to kill me. Now, King Saul didn't have time for any of this. He said, you see him? I see him. He says, what's he wearing? He wanted to confirm that this was him. What's he wearing? She said, I see he is garbed in a cloak. And that was good enough for King Saul. Why? Because throughout his lifetime, Samuel the prophet always was garbed in a cloak. It's all it's a verse. Fine. That's the story. I'll leave it as a cliffhanger. You want to know the rest? Go to the book of Samuel. You'll find out the rest of the story there. I mean, the rest of the story is that Samuel was very upset with King Saul. But what do you do over here? And King Saul said, I was desperate. I needed to have communication. So he said, the fact that the communication through the regular routes was not working for you, that should be an indication to you that you've lost favor in God's eyes and uh, your days are numbered. And he told him, you're going to die in this battle. And that's what happened. It was the battle with the Philistines and King Saul died. And that was the end of Shaul's kingdom and then the kingdom transferred to King David and the rest is history. Anyway, so let's get, so why are we bringing up the story here? When Samuel came back to this world through the machinations, the practices of Oiv, he came not garbed in the, in the shrouds that he was buried in, he came garbed in the cloak that he wore during his lifetime. So the proof from this is that when the dead come back, they're going to be clothed, they're going to be wearing the clothing that they wore during their lifetime. And in fact, this is, uh, I say, codified to an extent through a story by Rabbi Judah the Prince, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi Rebbe, who was, he was the, the, the author of the Mishnah. So this is recorded by Tosafot, which is a commentary on the Talmud in the Tractate Tubot, source number 15. <coughs> Rebbe said to his sons, do not spend a lot of money on burial shrouds because the righteous will rise in their clothing. It is implied that they should not bury him in expensive shrouds since the righteous will rise in the clothing they would ordinarily wear during their lifetime. In other words, the investment is, is not, not worth it. If they're going to wake up with these shrouds, then you might want to make very nice shrouds. You want them to come back looking nice and beautiful and, you know, high class. But... Um, these shrouds are going to be irrelevant anyway. They're going to decompose in the ground and then it's gone. Fine. So now we know they're going to come back ill and they're going to be healed by God. And we know that they're going to come back clothed in the clothing that they wore during their lifetime. Now, here comes the big question. How, how exactly is God going to bring them back to life? Like, what, what, is it, what happens? You know, if someone tried to dig out a grave, you're not going to find anything if enough years pass, you know, they decompose, etc. So what's going to happen here? So the Zohar says the following, Rabbi Chia said, the same body which died will itself be resurrected. In other words, the body never truly disappears, never truly decomposes. As implied by the verse, your dead shall be resurrected. It does not say they will be recreated. So the resurrection does not mean boom, recreation from nothing. They, they come something from nothing. No, no, no. The body is always going to remain, and from and, and that body will be recreated. How so? So the Zohar continues, For one bone, one bone will remain from the body and will never disintegrate. In fact, there's a word, there's a name for this bone. It's called the luz bone. Lamed Vav Zayn, or L-U-Z, luz. At the time of the resurrection, God will soften it with the dew of resurrection. The bone will become like yeast to dough and the entire body will be built from it. And afterward, God will give it the breath of life. <laughs> Rabbi Elazar said to him, It is so. Come and see. The bone will be softened through dew 
as implied by the verse, for a dew of lights is your dew. All right. So now here's the question. Which bone? Which bone is it? So where is this bone located in the body? Some say it is where the knot of the head to fill in is placed, which is the nape of the neck, right over there, on the top of the neck, right under the, the skull. Others claim it is the lowest vertebrae of the spine. Vertebra of the spine. The lowest bone of the spine. You see, it's not very clear exactly which one it is. So a person can't, you know, go and try to find the bone and preserve it. Don't worry about it. God knows how to preserve his bones. Yeah, the backup one, you know, the one of them destroyed, they still have... By the way, I'll just mention that on Saturday night, there's a halacha. There's a Jewish law that on Saturday night, you're supposed to eat a meal. Just like you have a meal on Shabbos, on Friday night, you have challah, Shabbos day, you have challah, etc. There's a halacha that you're supposed to eat a meal on Motzei Shabbos, on Saturday night, which is called Malava Malka. You're saying goodbye to the Sabbath queen, etc., with a party. And our sages tell us that the loose bone is nurtured from the food that you eat on Saturday night. So make sure that you eat you eat on Saturday night, the Malava Malka. You're having a connection to your ultimate recreate, resurrection when Mashiach will come. Sure. One of, one of the things that is traditional as far as burial, I've had this several times, is that soil from the land of Israel is placed beneath the bone in the neck, mm-hmm. which is the one we were talking right. about. Mm-hmm. So that theoretically, you actually are in Israel when you pass. And that bone is, is the one bone that, that does not. Very good. Very nice. Yep. Now we have one more question. I have one more question. What type of life will we live <coughs> after the resurrection? Is it going to be business as usual? What's the deal? All right, so let's go to page 13. Uh, we started a little bit late, so we're going to go a little bit over time here. Uh, the era of Olam Haba, the world to come after the resurrection, will be devoid of eating, drinking, procreation, commerce, jealousy, hatred, and competition. So what are we going to do all day? Sit on our phones. The righteous will sit with crowns on their heads, basking in the glory of the divine light, and will never return to the earth and will live forever. We're going to be busy enjoying God. Okay, that's what the Lama Ba means. There's one problem we have a tradition that when that era comes, we're going to have a special meal. Now, since after the resurrection there will no longer be any eating or drinking, how does this fit with the teaching of our sages that in the future God will prepare a feast for the righteous? And by the way, the future over here is referring to after the resurrection of the dead. We'll see soon a whole description of this meal. It's impossible unless there's a resurrection. The vast majority of commentators interpret this literally, that it will be a physical feast. Listen to this description of the beautiful, wonderful meal that's going to happen then. This is a tractate Psachim. In the future, God will prepare a feast for the righteous on the day that he extends his mercy to the descendants of Isaac. Which is talking about the resurrection. After After they eat and drink, the celebrants will give Abraham, our father, a cup of wine to recite the grace after meals, as he is the first of our forefathers. And Abraham will say to them, I will not recite the blessing, as I am blemished, for the wicked Ishmael came from me. Abraham will say to Isaac, take the cup and recite the blessing. Isaac will say to them, I will not recite the blessing, as the wicked Esau came from me. Isaac will say to Jacob, take the cup and recite the blessing. Jacob will say to them, I will not recite the blessing, as I married two sisters, Rachel and Leah, in their lifetimes. And in the future, the Torah forbade them from me. Now, although at the time it was not prohibited to wed two sisters, this practice would eventually be considered a serious transgression. So Jacob said, it's inappropriate for me to be the one to do it. You know, he's not calling foul on what he did. He was allowed to do that, and he was supposed to do that. But he's going to say, you know what, I'm not the poster boy. I'm not the one that's supposed to say the blessing now. Jacob will say to Moses, take the cup and recite the blessing. Moses will say to them, I will not recite the blessing, as I did not merit to enter the land of Israel, neither in my life nor in my death. By the way, here we already see, this could only happen if there's a resurrection. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive together at the same time. Right? <laughs> But Moses, Moses never saw Jacob. But here we see they're going to have a conversation over a cup of wine. 
Moses will say to Joshua, take the cup and recite the blessing. Joshua will say to them, I will not recite the blessing as I did not merit to have a son. The proof for this is, is that it is written, Joshua the son of Nun, and in the genealogical list of Ephraim it states, Nun his son, Joshua his son. Since the verse does not mention any children of Joshua, evidently he had no sons. Fine. So says, I'm not either, you know, I didn't have someone to continue my legacy, so I'm not going to recite it. Joshua will say to David, David was born like 300 something years after Joshua passed away, maybe even more. Take the cup and recite the blessing. David will say to them, I will recite the blessing. And it is fitting for me to recite the blessing as it is stated in Psalms, which is King David's book. I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. Okay. So we know that there's going to be a meal. It's going to be a physical meal. We're going to have to say grace after meals. We're going to say grace after meals on a cup. We're going to try to find the right person to lead the benching, to lead the grace after meals. It's going to be a whole conversation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua. Finally, King David was like, okay, I'll take the cup. And I'll, I'll do the benching. No. What's going to be served at this meal? Rabbah says that Rabbi Echanan says, in the future God will make a feast for the righteous from the flesh of the Leviathan. And with regard to the remainder of the Leviathan, they will divide it and use it for commerce in the markets of Jerusalem. And Rabbah says that Rabbi Echanan says, in the future God will prepare a sukkah from the righteous, for the righteous from the skin of the Leviathan. If one is deserving at least of this reward, a covering is prepared for him, and if one is not deserving, a necklace is prepared for him. If one is somewhat deserving, a necklace is prepared for him, and if one is not deserving, even of this, only an amulet is uh, am amulet is prepared for him from the skin of the Leviathan. And with regard to the remaining part of the skin of the Leviathan, God spreads it on the walls of Jerusalem, and its glory radiates from one end of the world to the other, as it is stated, and nations shall walk in your light, and kings at the brightness of your rising. And the question is, if in the time of the resurrection of the dead, as the Talmud tells us, there's no eating, no drinking, no procreation, no commerce, none of this. So what's the Talmud talking about over here? A Leviathan and a meal. Aliyah. Everyone's a tzaddik. Call Yisrael, Yeshlam Chelek, all the Jewish people. As it's Shene'emar, as the verse states, Va'ameich kulam tzaddikim, and your nation, they are all righteous people. Got to get used to the fact that there's no bad guys out there. All right? Everyone is part of the team. Everyone is on the team. Everyone's going to be part of it. You're worried. You're worried about, about the caterer. God's the caterer. You don't have to worry about him. He's going to make sure everyone gets what they need. But here's the question. I mean, the Talmud says there's going to be no eating, no drinking, none of that physical stuff, right? And here we're eating a physical Leviathan, a Leviathan that you're able to make a sukkah out of its skin and you're able to do commerce with it. Like, what, what's going on here? Right? And, and the cup of wine, that's a physical cup of wine that they're, that they're having a conversation about. So the Rebbe explains, In the era of the world to come, we will not need to eat in order to nurture our bodies. We're reading the Talmud wrong. The Talmud didn't say there's going to be no eating food. That we're not going to digest food then. What the Talmud is saying is we won't need food in order to nurture our bodies. Al-Tarabi explains that in the times of the coming of Mashiach, our bodies will be nurtured from the soul directly. We're not going to need food. We'll be able to go by days and days and days without eating food. By the way, it's happened before. Huh? Like Moses, there you go, for 40 days and 40 nights, for 120 days and nights, basically. It was on Mount Sinai. I didn't eat, I didn't drink. So how did he live? You can't live 40 days without eating and drinking. During that time period, Moses' body was nurtured from the Spirit, directly, without food. Why will we eat? Eating and drinking will serve a different purpose. Walter Rebbe in, in, in the Hasidic Discourse explains that there is a certain process uh, of elevating souls that happens through eating. So, at, at the time of the resurrection, our bodies will come back, our souls will be part of our bodies, and it's going to be bodies that are fully functioning bodies as they function today. Digestive systems, right? We're going to eat, we're going to digest, all of that. But we're not going to eat in order to nurture our bodies. 
We're not going to eat in order that our bodies should live. L- life is going to be automatic. It's going to be from the divine revelation that's, uh, that we're going to bask in at the time. The eating that we're going to do then is going to serve a different purpose. All right. Who wants the resurrection to happen fast? Right. Raise your hand. Me too. All righty. So, and how do we get that to happen? Maimonides says that very clearly that everyone has the obligation to view the world as equally balanced, good and evil. And if you do one good deed, you can tip the scale and bring salvation to the entire world. The coming of Mashiach, when he will rebuild the third holy temple, bring us all back to the land of Israel, and ultimately heal our broken hearts with the resurrection of the dead. May it happen very, very soon. Right now. All right. Thank you all for joining us. And Zai Gesund. Appreciate your effort. Thank you.